open God's word with you today. Um, What an awesome and amazing opportunity we have. We are about to hear the very words of God written for our instruction. So with this weighty task, we have to pray again. Would you please pray with me? Our dear Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your word. We are grateful, Lord, that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful. It's instructive for us. So, Father, as we turn to your word, Lord, we in faith, the best we can, submitting ourselves to you, Lord, we ask that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, so that as we hear your words, Lord, our response would be, yes, amen. Let it be. Conform me to the image of Christ. So, Father, as we spend time in your word this morning, we ask that you would cause this to sit in our hearts. That, Father, anything that might be said this morning that's not helpful or, Lord, that, um, Lord, might not be accurate, Father, we ask that you would strike it from memory. And that, Father, your word, your truth would sanctify us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I wonder, what do you think a blessed person looks like? As saints, we are the blessed people of God. We've been redeemed from sin. We enjoy the fullness of life that comes with our salvation, and we enjoy the the blessings that come with obedience to our master. So as we encounter saints, what do you expect a blessed person to look like? Would you be surprised if I told you it looks like a man wandering in the wilderness waiting on the promises of God, stricken by grief, but marching forward in faith? Would you be even more surprised to hear that his crooked brother, who is prosperous, wealthy, powerful, is the exact opposite image of blessed? This is the common Christian experience. Our Lord was mistreated by the world, so we expect as his slaves to fare no better. Meanwhile, our lost neighbors seemingly do just fine in the world without submitting to King Jesus. The wicked in our society perhaps even get ahead, find their way at the top, and get away with it. Sometimes it seems like the bad guys are winning and the good guys are losing. So how do we make sense of this? Well, Christian, the Bible is up front with this reality. Sometimes the wicked prosper in life, and and we don't need to let this discourage us. Rather, we cling by faith to the promises of God because he has shown himself faithful to ultimately punish evil and keep his word to his people. 
So this morning, we will see this very idea at play in Genesis 36. So join with me in your Bibles in Genesis 36. And as we go through Genesis 36 this morning, we're going to see four things. One, we need to acknowledge with the Bible that sometimes the wicked do prosper. And two, we shouldn't be drawn to the prosperity of the wicked because it doesn't lead to their ultimate good. God will bring everything to justice. Three, we should cling by faith to God's promise by persevering in obedience. And four, we should share our good news of the gospel with the wicked. So while you turn to Genesis 36, I want to remind you of what the Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So as we finish Genesis in Sunday school this morning, uh, what better time to take a closer look at Genesis 36 and see Paul's words in action? Yes, this is a genealogy, but it's still part of God's word. It's nonetheless profitable, as 2 Timothy just told us. My hope is that in our time together, um, this will model some tools we might use in reading genealogies so that we will grow in our love for the Bible and see what our loving Father is trying to communicate to us. We will focus on two tools specifically today, and that is counting and context. Counting and context, that's two C's. So in counting, we count the people in the genealogy. Often it's um, important people who are placed in a a certain spot in the genealogy. So like they're the seventh person in the genealogy, the tenth or the seventieth. So we count the people into the genealogy and note any significant number pairings or any significant total number of people in the genealogy. And then second, context. We want to compare our observations from the text with um, the passages that come before and after the genealogy. Often the author is trying to make a a comparison or contrast between the details and the text um, that immediately comes before or after. So he he might be tying the pattern into uh, a pattern that's in the Bible. So we want to ask ourselves how this genealogy compares with its context. So having said all that, let's set our passage in context, okay? So Genesis opens with God creating a good world, right? And he blesses it. And at the pinnacle of his creation is humankind, created in his image. And God's first words to this human couple is a blessing. He says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. So it's like God's game plan is as the human couple um, reproduce and the earth is filled with image bearers who subject the earth and minister God's good rule and reign to the world, it's like God's glory covers the face of the earth. But buying into the lies of the serpent, being deceived and thus sinning against God, death enters through sin. 
but God promises to send a serpent crusher to make all things right. And so Genesis then follows this conflict between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, which culminates in the Messiah. So this hope of the seed of the woman who's going to crush the serpent, it all, all these promises come to land on God's covenant with Abraham. God promises Abraham to bless him, to give him descendants, and in, to give them this one particular royal descendant, right? The Messiah. So throughout Genesis, we find this conflict of the seed of the woman versus the seed of the serpent in the families in Genesis. So think of Cain versus Abel, Shem and Japheth versus Ham, Isaac versus Ishmael, and now in Genesis 36, we have Jacob versus Esau. And these genealogies in Genesis track this conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Whenever these genealogies are listed, it's the seed of the serpent brother who comes first, followed by the seed of the woman brother. Okay, so we have That's exactly what we find here in Genesis 36. We have Esau, who sides with the serpent, and Jacob in Genesis 37, who is the seed of the woman. Now, if we check in on Jacob and see how he's doing, he's not doing so hot. He's having a rough go. After returning from Laban, Jacob meets his brother Esau, and they have like a a pseudo-reconciliation, but then tragedy strikes. In Genesis 34, his daughter is violated by the men of Shechem. So his sons, Simeon and Levi, decide, we're going to go get revenge. And they destroy the town of Shechem, committing like a war crime. Jacob is now anxious that the people of the land are going to be out to get him. Then in Genesis 35, in obedience to God, Jacob returns to Bethel as God fulfills his promise to bring Jacob back to uh, Bethel, back from Laban's house, back into the land of Abraham and his father Isaac. But the joyful journey is also met with sadness as Rebekah's nurse dies. Um, and it's just a painful reminder of um, Rebekah and Jacob after Rebekah sends Jacob away in Genesis 27. The father-son relationship, they never speak again. Scripture never even speaks of Rebecca again. All we have is the death of her nurse here. Jacob's beloved wife, Rachel, then gives birth to a second son, Benjamin, making 12 children born to Israel. Yet this joy is also short-lived as Jacob's beloved wife dies in childbirth. Now Jacob has three wives. To add insult to injury, Reuben, Jacob's eldest son, goes into his father's concubine, Bilhah. And if this weren't enough, Jacob's father, Isaac, dies at the end of the chapter. This is a man probably beset by grief and sorrow. It's with this context that Esau in Genesis 36 is going to rise to power. Amidst his sorrow, righteous Jacob must watch his wayward brother ascend to greatness. In the world. And so scripture tells us that sometimes the wicked prosper while the righteous suffer. Let's turn to our text here. Verse 1 opens with, These are the records of the generations of Esau, that is Edom. Now, this phrase, these are the records of the generations of, if you have a Bible, if you like to mark in your Bible, you might want to 
underline that. This phrase is very important in Genesis. Um, Genesis is divided into ten sections by these phrases. They make up the, the structure of the book. So these genealogies, like we said, track the conflict between the seed of the woman versus the seed of the serpent. So we're told that Esau is Edom. Edom, if you're wondering, like, I think that's familiar. I, I remember that being in the Bible. What's that? Edom is a nation that's descended from Esau. Um, so we see that as God ge- uh, promises to Abraham that many nations are going to come um, from him, that's in part fulfilled through guys like Ishmael and Esau who give rise to nations. So the author is setting up our expectations from the beginning. Esau is this bad guy, right? The seed of the serpent guy, siding with the devil, rejecting the promises of God, having already foolishly sold his birthright and now is out to get his blessed brother, Jacob. He gives rise to the nation of Edom and they are going to be a future adversary to Israel. So with all this floating in our minds, the author embarks on the genealogy. Esau took his wives from the daughter of Canaan, verse 2 says. Ada, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, and Oholibamah, the daughter of Anna, the granddaughter of Zibion the Hivite, with Esau, um, <coughs> excuse me, so with Esau being the seed of the serpent, we can expect him to do seed of the serpent type things. Um, and this is exactly what we find him doing. He marries two daughters of Canaan, a Hivite and a Hittite. Now Moses is expecting you to remember what's so important about Canaan. So if you remember back in, um, uh, I believe it's Genesis 9, um, no, uh, Ham kind of defiles his father, and so Noah curses Canaan, the descendant of Ham. Um, And Moses is trying to make you think, who is the first person ever cursed in the book of Genesis? The serpent, the devil. So Moses is saying that Canaan and his descendants have sided against God and with the serpent. And what does Esau do? He marries two people which is in and of itself breaking God's pattern of marriage in Genesis 1 and 2. And then these two people are aligned with the serpent. And the problems are only going to grow from here. Look with me at the next verse. Verse 3, also base math, Ishmael's daughter, the sister of Nebioth. This is Esau's now third wife, just like Jacob had three wives. Right? There's that context tool coming into play. So just, uh, we're going to see more points of contact as we go, so keep that in mind. Now, Moses is again assuming things he's told us earlier in Genesis. So in the end of Genesis 26, we learn that it brought grief to Esau's parents that he married these Hittite and Hivite women. And in Genesis 28, Rebecca and Jacob, are, or Rebecca and Isaac are going to send Jacob away, and they're like, don't marry these Canaanite women go marry from Abraham's family. So that's where he goes to Laban. Well, Esau gets wind of this, and he says, okay, mom and dad don't like me marrying these Canaanite women. I need to marry within the family. But who does he decide to marry? A daughter of Ishmael. The older seed of the serpent brother who antagonized Isaac, the seed of the woman. Again, 
Esau marries for a third time into the serpent's family. Esau's three wives are going to produce five children. So in verse 4, Adah bore Eliphaz to Esau, and Basemath bore Reuel, and Ohelibimah bore Jeush, and Jalam, and Korah. Aren't they fun names? Um, these are the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. So Esau decided to choose the seed of the serpent rather than with the seed of the woman. But it gets worse. Esau's going to reject the land promise that God makes to his people. So look with me at verse 6. Then Esau took his wives and his sons and his daughters and all his household and all his livestock and all his cattle and all his goods, which he had acquired in the land of Canaan, and went to another land away from his brother. For their property had become too great for them to live together, and the land where they sojourned could not sustain them because of their livestock. So Esau lived in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. So Esau's prospered. He has wives, sons, daughters, households, livestock, cattle, goods. And where did he get all of this? In Canaan, in the land of promise. But then he decides he and Jacob need to separate. This land can't sustain both of them. So Esau decides to settle in the hill country of Seir. Now, when we read that passage, were your ears ringing at all? Did you hear echoes of another passage? This separation of Esau and Jacob is phrased just like the separation of Abraham and Lot in Genesis 13, 6-9. Now, there's something you've got to know about Abraham and Lot's separation. Abraham makes this deal with Lot because they too have great flocks and herds and they, they say they can't fit in the land together. So Abraham says, if you go east, then I'll go west. If you go west, then I'll go east. And that you choose. Where do you want to go, Lot? So Lot decides, I'm going to go east. Now, east in the Bible, and especially in Genesis, often pictures going out of the presence of God leaving the blessing of God. So think of um, Cain, right? When he kills Abel, God sends him out east of Eden. Um, so Lot journeys east, and where does Lot go? He goes to Sodom and Gomorrah, the hallmarks of sin and debauchery in the Bible. So the fact that like Lot Esau is going to go east is a bad thing. But Jacob is going to choose to stay in the promised land, keeping faith in God's promises. Esau decides there's no way God's promises could be big enough to include me, right? This land is too small. So Esau decides I will build my own kingdom. That brings us to verse 9. These then are the records of the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites in the hill country of Seir. Now we arrive at the genealogy portion of Genesis 36. Now, now please don't check out here. Press in. My hope is that as we go through this text together, you'll see the gems that Moses is trying to show more than tell us. But we're also going to gain some skill concerning how to read genealogies in the Bible. So follow along with me. Esau's genealogy is going to be on the screen here for you so you can follow along and not be confused by the names. 
Okay, so these are the names of Esau's sons, verse 10. Eliphaz, the son of Esau's wife, Adah. Reuel, the son of Esau's wife, Basemeth. The sons of Eliphaz were Teman, Omar, Zepho, Gatam, and Kenaz. Timnah was a concubine of Esau's son, Eliphaz, and she bore Amalek to Eliphaz. Now these are the sons of Esau's wife, Adah. These are the sons of Reuel, Nahath, and Zerah, Shammah, and Mizah. These were the sons of Esau's wife, Basemath. These were the sons of Esau's wife, Ohalibamah, the daughter of Anna, the granddaughter of Zibion. She bore to Esau, Jeush, and Jalam, and Korah. So in verses 11 to 14, the author reiterates to us the five children of Esau uh, that he had with his, his three wives and introduces us to the children born to Esau's children. So these are Esau's grandchildren. So we start with Eliphaz's sons, the grandchildren of Esau and Adah, five legitimate children born to Eliphaz. Verse 12 records that he has another son through a concubine, Amalek. That's important. We're going to come back to that, so put a pin in it. But then the, that, uh, verse 12 says, these are the sons of Esau's wife, Ada, really? I thought that they were the sons of Eliphaz, Teman, Omar, Zephon, Gatam, Kinez. But you're saying they're the sons of Ada? That seems strange. Well, we proceed to verse 13, the children of Reuel and the grandchildren of Esau and Basemath. Reuel has four children. Then we get that interesting note again. These were the sons of Esau's wife, Basemath. Really? I thought that they were the sons of Reuel. Well, maybe that's significant. It's like for both Ada and Basemath, their children are count or their grandchildren, excuse me, are counted as their own children, as the heirs of Esau's prosperity. Well, then we go to Ohalibamah, and she has three children, and that's it. No grandchildren. That's weird. Interesting. Well, if you use that counting method that we uh, were talking about, everyone in the, this part of the genealogy, there's 19 people. Well, that doesn't seem overly significant. Nor does anyone hold a special prominent position in the genealogy, like the seventh generation. This genealogy really isn't organized like that. It's more like Esau's family tree. This section really focused on Esau's grandchildren. So if we were to count the five legitimate children of Eliphaz, the four uh, grandchildren of Esau and Basemath, and then the three children of Ohalibamah, remember, no grandchildren, five plus four plus three. That equals 12. Oh, we just learned in Genesis 35, right before Esau's genealogy, that Jacob had 12 sons. Again, the context, point of contact. Now those interesting notes of Eliphaz's sons being called Adah's sons and um, Reuel's sons being called Basemath's sons, now that makes sense. Esau's grandchildren are called his children. Then it's like Esau has 12 future heirs just like Jacob. But Moses is going to heighten the drama more for us. Look with me at verses 15 to 19. These are the chiefs of the sons of Esau. The sons of Eliphaz, the firstborn of Esau, are Chief Teman, Chief Omar, Chief Zepho, Chief Kenaz, Chief Korah, Chief Gatam, Chief Amalek. These are the chiefs descended from Eliphaz in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Adah. 
These are the sons of Reuel, Esau's son, chief Nahath, chief Zerah, chief Shammah, chief Mizah. These are the chiefs descended from Reuel in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Esau's wife, Basemath. These are the sons of Esau's wife, Ohalibamah, chief Jeush, chief Jalam, chief Korah. These are the chiefs descended from Esau's wife, Ohalibamah, the daughter of Anna. These are the sons of Esau, that is Edom, and these are their chiefs. So in verses 15 to 19, all the grandchildren of Esau that we just talked about, those 12 guys, they've become chiefs. That's pretty impressive. But what are Jacob's 12 sons doing? Are they chiefs too? No. Are they rulers? No. They're sojourners and strangers, wandering in the desert as shepherds. They're committing atrocities. They're bickering against one another. And as Genesis 37 is going to show us, they're selling each other into slavery. What's more is, remember verse 12 with Amalek, the son of the concubine? Amalek is the father of the Amalekites, a bitter enemy of Israel, so loathed that in Exodus 17, the Lord makes an oath to blot Amalek out of history. These are wicked people. And who's their father? Esau. So for all of Esau's wicked decisions, he's still prospered. So let's turn to verses 20 to 30. Now this brings us to the genealogy of Seir the Horite. Um, this is the guy who settled and lived in the land that Esau's moving to. So Esau's wife, Ohalibama, is actually the granddaughter of Seir as well. Uh, why is this genealogy here? Why is this random thing about Esau's father-in-law here? Well, let's read it, and we'll think on it together. So uh, I think there's a second slide that should have Seir's family. There we go. These are the sons of Seir the Horite, the inhabitants of the land. Lotan and Shobal and Zibion and Anna and Dishon and Ezer and Dishan. These are the chiefs descended from the Horites, the sons of Seir in the land of Edom. The sons of Lotan were Hori and Heman. The Lotan sisters was Timah. She, uh, or these are the sons of Shobal, Alvin, and Manahath, and Ebal, and Shepho, and Onam. These are the sons of Zibion, Aiah, and Anna. And he's the Anna who found the hot springs in the wilderness when he was pasturing the donkeys of his father Zibion. These are the children of Anna, Dishon and Ohalibamah, the daughter of Anna. These are the sons of Dishon, Hemden, and Eshban, and Ethran, and Kiran. These are the sons of Ezer. Bilhan and Zavan and Achan. These are the sons of Dishan, Uz and Aaron. These are the chiefs descended from the Horites. Chief Lotan, Chief Shobal, Chief Zibion, Chief Anna, Chief Dishan, Chief Ezer, Chief Dishan. These are the chiefs descended from the Horites according to their various chiefs in the land of Seir. So Seir has seven children, and those seven children have 20 children of their own. Then in verse 29, it says that these are the chiefs of the Horites and lists the seven children of Seir. So these chiefs seem to be the, the focus of the text. So maybe you start counting the people again, right? 28 people in the genealogy. That doesn't seem significant. Um, we already said that they had 20 kids. But then we heard that um, Seir's family, he has seven children. Seven's an important number in Genesis, isn't it? It pictures completion. 
in this, in the, uh, this uh, section, verses 20 to 28, is bracketed by these guys are the chiefs of Sheer. So Moses is really focusing in on this. So as we get a big picture of Seir's family, we're like, this is a powerful guy. He's founded a nation on seven kids who have 20 kids, and these seven kids become chiefs. This is a large and powerful dude. Seir's family tree then is then meant to show us just how strong Esau is. You see, later in the Bible, in Deuteronomy 2.12, Moses said that Esau came in and destroyed this mighty nation, dispossessing them, taking their land. Now, if Esau can take out a powerful guy like Seir, it means that Esau is all the more stronger. He is one bad dude. It's like Esau has his own Joshua marching into the land, taking the conquest moment. Esau has taken Seir. And all the while, what is Jacob doing? He's wandering in Canaan. He's waiting expectantly for the Lord to give him the land. Meanwhile, his older brother Esau, he's already got his land. And what's more, Esau is going to establish a kingdom long before Israel's awaited monarchy. So look with me at verses 31 to 39 here. Now these are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the sons of Israel. So Esau settles in the land of Seir, establishes his own kingdom. He has kings that come from him, and we have eight that are recorded here in verses 32 to 39 for us. Bela, the son of Beor, reigned in Edom, and the name of his city was Dinabah. Then Bela died. And Jobab, the son of Zerah of Basra, became king in his place. Then Jobab died. And Husham of the land of the Timonites became king in his place. Then Husham died. And Hadad, the son of Bedad, who defeated Midian in the field of Moab, became king in his place. And the name of his city was Avith. And then Hadad died. And Samla of Masuka became king in his place. Then Samla died, and Shaw of Rehoboth on the Euphrates River became king in his place. Then Shaw died. And then Baal Hanan, the king, uh, the son of Akbor, became king in his place. Then Baal Hanan, the son of Akbor, died. And Hadar became king in his place. And the name of his city was Pau, and his wife's name was Mahedabel, the daughter of Matrib, the daughter of Mezahab. And all this before what? Before any king reigned over the sons of Israel. The patriarchs were promised royal descendants. And later in the biblical books, we were looking forward to uh, God establishing his kings to rule over his people. All leading to the promised Messiah, Jesus. But while Israel waits, wandering through the desert, stuck in Egypt, Stuck in the wilderness for 40 years because of their sin, Edom already has kings. And what's more, Esau has chiefs descended from him in verses 40 to 43, who establish families and settle in places throughout Edom. So look at me with uh, verse 40 to 43. These are the names of the chiefs descended from Esau according to their families and their localities by their names. 
Chief Timna, Chief Alva, Chief Jatheth, Chief Oholibimah, Chief Ella, Chief Pinion, Chief Kanaz, Chief Timnan, Chief Mibzar, Chief Magdiel, Chief Iram. These are the chiefs of Edom, that is Esau, the father of the Edomites, according to their habitations in the land of their possession. So let's summarize what all that was. Moses seems to be drawing a contrast between Esau and Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons, but Esau has 12 plus chiefs descended from him. Jacob's wandering in Canaan, waiting for the Lord to give him the land. Meanwhile, Esau has already used his great power to take the land of Seir. Jacob has promised rulers to come from him. Meanwhile, Esau's descendants have already set up a kingdom long before Jacob and his descendants. It looks like all the promises made to Jacob and the patriarchs have come true for Esau. So we might wonder, who really is blessed? Why would the seed of the serpent thrive while God's people seemingly flounder? Why do the wicked flourish and the righteous suffer? That question rings all too close to home for us, doesn't it? Why does my classmate get away with cheating and cutting corners while I work my tail off and still don't make the grades? Why does that coworker who lies, is lazy, or rides on the coattails of others, he gets the praise and he gets the recognition and the promotion while I get passed over? Why did the enemies of God's word advance in the culture while the church is ostracized and the clarity of God's word is exchanged for pleasant little lies? Friends, the Bible isn't naive about these things. It recognizes in the complexity of life that sometimes the wicked do flourish and the righteous suffer. Ecclesiastes 8.14, the speaker recognizes there are righteous men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. On the other hand, there are evil men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. The Bible knows well our plight, so take courage. Your situation is not unknown to the Bible, nor is God ignorant of it. Furthermore, the Bible has an answer to our plight. We must not be drawn to the wicked's prosperity because God is a God of justice. It doesn't work out for them in the end. The wicked will be repaid for their evil and the righteous will be repaid for their good. So throughout Genesis 36, I'd submit to you that Moses is subtly exposing cracks in Esau's armor. Some hints that not all goes well for him. Look back with me at verse 8. As Esau settles in Seir, Moses is assuming that you remember Isaac's words to Esau in Genesis 27. So in Genesis 27:39, Esau says, uh, Father, bless me also. Don't you have a blessing for me? And all, Esau, all Isaac can tell him is, your dwelling will be away from the fertility of the earth and away from the dew of heaven. So that's being fulfilled as Esau goes to Seir. Seir is not as great a place to live as the promised land. Leaving the land of promise isn't just rebellious on Esau's part. It's dumb. Sin isn't just rebellious. It's dumb. Esau has turned his back on the Lord who was giving a rich and fertile land to his people. 
I was doing some research on Edom last night, and it's like this desert plain where the people who lived there were like nomads, and they did desert trading. Esau's turned his back on what God has given to his people. He's traded the blessings of God's promises for the mediocrity that the world offered him. He traded Thanksgiving dinner for McDonald's. Furthermore, in verses 20 to 30, Esau may look all impressive by conquering that great nation, but Deuteronomy 2.12 and verse 22 say, the Lord was the one who destroyed the enemy nation before Esau. The Lord gave Seir to Esau for a possession. Esau, for all of his might and all of his prestige, whether he knew it or acknowledged it or not, he was just as dependent on the Lord as Jacob was. And then there's the matter of Esau's kings. If you read the list, you notice that each king is unrelated to the former. There's no dynasty. There's, there, we have an assortment of kings from an assortment of families from all over the nation. So it's like these guys, they probably didn't have that much power to begin with. The kingdom of man isn't as impressive as we thought. Esau's kings have another problem as well. You see, following every king is the steady beep. Then he died. Then he died. Then he died. For all their prestige, Edom cannot escape the curse of sin. They cannot escape death. And by rejecting God and thus aligning himself with the devil, Esau has no promise to look forward to. He has no hope to which he can cling. The only promise that applies to him is the promise of the Messiah's heel crushing the head of the serpent and those who would align with him. And one other thing, if you were to count everyone in the genealogy of Esau in, in chapter 36, depending on how you count, you end up with 70 people. That's the same number of nations from the Tower of Babel in Genesis 10 to 11. Now, I'd, I'd like to do more thinking on this, but I can't help but think that Esau is being presented as just another picture of fallen humanity building a fallen kingdom that won't last and that ultimately God will bring to judgment and to nothing. Yes, the wicked flourish sometimes. Yes, they sometimes come out on top of the righteous, but to what end? The kingdoms of this world never last. Sin only offers a cheap knockoff of what God offers his people in his promises. Your classmates may cheat to get ahead, but even if they're not found out and disciplined, cheating won't serve them when they have to apply what they've learned in a job. Your coworker may cut corners in secret to climb the corporate ladder, but God will reward the diligent who work unto him. He sees what is done in secret and will bring evil to justice. This brings us to the ultimate truth that even if the wicked don't face justice in this life, everyone stands before God at death. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And it's eternity that counts. 
Who cares on you if you come out on top of this life if you forfeit eternity? Who cares if you were first in the first 500 yards of a marathon and came in last? Who cares about the kingdom of this world? We are striving for the kingdom of God where eternal life and life in its fullest is waiting as we dwell with our king forever. So saints, let this be a warning to us. There's no ultimate happiness to be found in this life. Fullness of joy is only found at God's right hand. The only kingdom that will endure is the kingdom of God. If we're making the same judgments that Esau is, giving up on God's promises, forsaking his commands in favor of our own agenda in our own terms, we must repent. We must seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, trusting that all these things will be added to us. Maybe you're here this morning or you're listening to this message online and you realize you've been building the wrong kingdom. Like Esau, let me tell you, it's not too late. Your story doesn't have to end like Esau who built a crumbling kingdom and found no place for repentance, the author of Hebrews tells us. Today can be the day of salvation. If you will believe that God in the fullness of time sent his son, our Lord Jesus, who lived a perfect life of obedience to God and yet died on the cross for your sins, bearing the punishment for you, he was buried for three days and on the third day rose again and ascended to God's right hand where he now sits in power, reigning and ruling until he comes again to usher in the new heavens and new earth. If you believe in this gospel and thus leave your sinful life behind and turn in obedience to Christ, Jesus can make you new. He will forgive you. You can be a son or daughter of Abraham and be made righteous. You can be a part of God's kingdom, which is everlasting and has true life and flourishing. Please talk to me or one of the pastors afterward. We would love to chat with you. Well, if Esau pictures what we shouldn't do, then what should we do? Look with me at verse 30, or chapter 37, verse 1. Now Jacob lived in the land where his father had sojourned, in the land of Canaan. Jacob chooses to live in the land of Canaan. He lives in the land God promised to Abraham and Isaac. Jacob could have decided that God is wasting his time. God's too slow. He could go pursue other things. He could turn back and go try to set up his own life, try to find prosperity, instead of waiting on the promises of God. But no, Jacob by faith, as Hebrew eleven thirteen to 16 tells us, continues to live as a sojourner and a stranger in a land not yet his own, waiting for the Lord to come through on his promise and give him and his descendants the land. What would compel Jacob to do this? Well, I don't know for certain, but I imagine that if you were to ask Jacob, he might say something like this to you. I'm trusting God's promises because he has been nothing but faithful in the past. He promised Abraham a son, 
even when he was old, even when Sarah was barren and her womb was as good as dead, and yet they had my, bro- they had my father Isaac. My, my mom and dad, Isaac and Rebekah, they were barren too. They couldn't have children. But they cried out to the Lord, and God, just like he said, gave them us, Esau and myself. And then when God told me that he would bring me back to Bethel, bring me back from Laban's house, bring me back from the land, he did it. God has been nothing but faithful in the past. So I'm going to trust he will be nothing but faithful in the future. And Jacob's faith is vindicated. Yes, Esau has 12 sons who become chiefs, but Jacob's sons will be blessed by him in Genesis 49, and they will become the progenitors of a nation that will bless the world. In fact, um, Joseph becomes the ruler of all Egypt, and Judah becomes the father of the Messiah, who blesses all the nations. Yes, Esau got the land of Seir, but Jacob's descendants will inherit the promised land where God will dwell with them. And if we remember Isaac's promise to Esau, or prophecy to Esau, Isaac says, you will serve your brother. And this is exactly what happens. During David's reign, Esau becomes a servant, or sorry, Edom becomes a servant of Israel. Yes, Esau sets up a kingdom, but Israel will have the Davidic dynasty and will have the Messiah who reigns on the throne of David and establishes it and it holds it with justice and righteousness forever. Jacob doesn't see the promise fulfilled in his lifetime. But that's okay because he will enjoy the new heavens, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem forever dwelling with the Lord. So who really came out on top? Who really is blessed? The one who held fast to the promise. So as you apply yourself in school, hold fast to the promises of Scripture, like Proverbs 2, 7-8 that says, God is a shield to those who walk in integrity. Continue to work hard and honestly. As you apply yourself at your job, hold fast to the promises of Scripture, like Colossians 3, 23-24, commanding us to work heartily as to the Lord, knowing that the Lord, from Him we will receive the reward of our inheritance. Persevere in integrity and excellence in your work. And as we, the church, continue to evangelize to a lost and dying world, let's remember and hold fast to the words of our Savior in Matthew 28, where he said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And me, the one who has said all authority is given to me, I will be with you even unto the end of the age. And if he is for us, who can be against us? Now we could end here. Despite Esau's rebellion, leaving him flat on his face, but I don't think the text ends there. The text ends with God offering mercy to Esau's descendants. You see, we have to ask why Esau was so blessed. Why did he prosper? Remember, we said Esau is following in the steps of guys like Ishmael 
And God told um, Ishmael, I will make you a great nation because you are physically descended from Abraham. So God, so um, Esau's prosperity, his blessing into becoming a nation is really God keeping his promise to Abraham that from him would come a host of nations. Yet this physical blessing anticipates the spiritual blessing. Just as all those physically descended from Abraham were blessed and become great nations, so too all the nations of the world will be blessed through the seed of Abraham, Jesus Christ, who blesses the nations by ransoming some from every tribe, nation, and tongue from the bondage of sin to the abundant life of the kingdom of God. And yes, that includes Edom. As Christians, we have the privilege of sharing God's good news of redemption with the world. We have the joy of experiencing the mercy of God and sharing it with others. We have the joyful duty to go to the nations and call them to be reconciled to God. We get to watch as God brings dead people to life. We get to watch the church expand as the nations experience the blessing of Abraham. So as a former pastor once said, we have the privilege as beggars to tell other beggars where they can find bread. So invite that classmate to church. Have that coworker in your home for a meal and let them encounter a godly home where the family submits to the word of God. And as the church, let's continue to lovingly speak the truth to a simple world. Pray for those who persecute us. Send and support missionaries to plant gospel churches and plead for the lost and dying to submit to a king, a good king, who will rule with justice and righteousness forever. Amen. Please pray with me. Our Father, all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable. Lord, we ask that you would increase in us a love for your word. That, Father, our Bible reading plans wouldn't end in the month of February. That, Father, we would fall more in love with your word and thus fall more in love with you. Increase our obedience and let these passages encourage us so that by perseverance in the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have So, Father, conform us to the image of your Son through your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.